You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. From CFUV 101.9 FM, I'm your host, Maureen Chow. Today, I'm here with Paige Toms. Paige, how are you doing today? I'm great, Maureen. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. So I first want to ask, what are some things about you? What are some things about me? Oh my gosh. Um, you want the, the boring school stuff or the interesting personal <laughs> stuff? We can do a bit of both, <laughs> okay. I'm sure, if you start with the school stuff. Okay. So I am a in my second year, the tail end of an MA in history uh, and uh, also been lucky enough to be in a concentration called Cultural Social Political Thought here at the University of Victoria. And I am living in Thesis World right now. And what does Thesis World look like? Thesis World looks like, um, well, actually, yesterday I tweeted out at about 10 o'clock at night that I thought my office chair and my ass had actually melded into one <laughs> entity. <laughs> I was there for so long yesterday. So that's sort of what it looks like. I have no life. I uh, Unless people are asking me about my thesis, I don't really have much else to talk about these days. Well, why don't we talk about your thesis and what is the name Great. of your thesis? Great. So the name of my thesis is the ARC, uh, A-R-C, of the Covenant, the Evolution of Trinity Western University's Community Covenant in the Face of Secularization. And what are some of the key objectives with this thesis? So I'm, I'm looking at uh, three questions, I guess. So I'm looking at how the covenant has changed over time. So that, that arc that has been created from their earliest covenant, which I believe is around 1972, to the most recent one, which was written in 2009, and is the one that has been at the heart of the most recent controversy with their law school. So I'm, I'm looking at how it's changed over time, why perhaps it has changed over time, and what the internal responses to those changes have been. So by internal responses, I mean Trinity Western University members, so students, faculty, staff. And what exactly is the covenant? So the, the covenant for people who aren't aware, and I will say uh, this, this most recent battle that they've had around their law school has put them on the map, uh, perhaps not in a positive way, but it's made a lot more people aware of Trinity Western. And so they have what they call our community covenant, our pledge to one another. And it's essentially about five and a half pages, uh, which read very much as a code of conduct. So everything from not plagiarizing, so what you would find at most universities, to to questions around sexual behavior. So sex is reserved for the intimacy of marriage, for example, uh, and then of course their marriage definition, which has been really at the heart of the controversy, their their definition of marriage is uh, one man and one woman. And how has this affected their application to obtain a law school, or how has this affected them in the past when they were denied other 
institutions within the school? Up until the law school, they hadn't been denied anything. They were in the Supreme Court of Canada back in 2001 around their application for school of education. So in, uh, I'll, I'll try to make this as nutshelly as possible. So they had applied for a school of education. And prior to that, what their education program looked like was students could go to Trinity Western for their first two years, I believe, of an education degree teaching uh, certificate. And then they would have to go to SFU for their last portion. And then Trinity Western decided they wanted to be able to actually offer uh, their their own own sort of three, four-year teaching degree. And so uh, how it works here in BC is that if you're asking for permission to confer a degree in any area, you have to go through the Ministry of Advanced Education. So the same thing here at BC. If BC decided that they were going to have a med school, they'd have to come up with a curriculum, they'd have to go to the Ministry of Advanced Ed, that would go back and forth, Ministry of Advanced Ed would say, yep, you can confer this degree, which is what happened with the their application for uh, teaching school of education. But for certain professions, there is then the accreditation piece. So, uh, so to become a teacher, you have to have a teaching degree, and you have to be accredited by the BC College of Teachers, right? Or the BC College of Doctors and Surgeons, right. or dentists, or whatever. Very much like the law school. Yeah. Very much like the, the law school. Yep. So, so it with the School of Education, the BC College of Teachers actually denied them accreditation. So they'd be able to get a degree, but they wouldn't actually be able to practice being teachers here. And so that went through the various stages of court. So, you know, you, you make a human rights complaint. If that doesn't get settled, then you go to the BC Supreme Court. And then for whichever side loses, they can take it to the BC Court of Appeals. And then again, whichever side loses, if they want to challenge it again, it then goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada actually ruled in favor of Trinity Western University. And so since 2001, they have had a school of education. And to date, there has been no complaints about any of the teachers. Some of those teachers have gone on to be recognized in a myriad of ways for their teaching skill. Uh, some of them, I assume, are teaching in Christian schools. Some of them are teaching in public schools. The argument from the BC um, BC College of Teachers was that in the previous covenant, it wasn't wasn't called a covenant prior to two thousand and nine, but I've sort of umbrellaed all of them under covenant. covenant. Yeah. So so in the nineteen ninety nine document, which is the precursor to the 2009 one it also talked about biblically condemned behavior such as homosexuality so that's actually wording from from that 1999 document the bc college of teachers felt that they were going to be producing homophobic teachers and it wasn't in the public's best interest to have those teachers teaching our children like influencing the young influencing the young perhaps expressing their own homophobia towards students in the classroom and the bc call uh, the supreme court of canada rather determined that there was no proof that this was going to produce homophobic teachers any more so than any other school right so there's going to be homophobic students in every school in every city across the country so trinity western they could not prove that 
that they were going to be more likely to produce less quality teachers. And fast forward to a couple years. The law school. The law school. Mm-hmm. How did that affect the school and their reputation in the media? And also, how does this play into what you're looking at and what you're studying? Okay, so that's that's a big question. So again, very sort of long story short, they applied for a law school. I'll really water this down. They applied for a law school. It was approved uh, by some provincial law societies and denied in BC, Ontario, and Nova Scotia. Ultimately went to the Supreme Court of Canada involving just Ontario and BC. Nova Scotia had sort of given up the fight a little while ago. Uh, and in this instance, Trinity Western University lost by a margin of nine to two, I believe. So quite, um, quite a disparity, actually. So what that will mean for their law school moving forward, I'm not sure, because it doesn't look like they're willing at this point to make changes to the covenant. For the most part, in mainstream media, and I guess it depends on what you mean by media, so or mainstream. So if you happen to be... I mean, listen, most of those students that are there are swimming in the larger waters of society, right? They're also perhaps listening to the CBC or reading the Globe and Mail. But if they happen to be, you know, a student or a faculty that is sort of living in this kind of institutional completeness where they're hanging out, they're going to Christian school, they're hanging out with other Christians, they're going to a conservative Christian university, and they're only getting their news sources from um, from Christian newspapers, then in that case, you don't have a clear idea of what the rest of Canada kind of looks like because you're just living in your in that world that you've right. created. Right. That goes for many different cultures and, and faiths. Uh, but in mainstream media, there has been this sense or this reflection that Trinity Western is really behind the times, that they're really practicing discrimination, that uh, that this is, you know, 15 or so proposed lawsuits that openly LGBTQ students will not be able to take advantage of uh, unless they're willing to sign this covenant and abide by it while they're there. Uh, so, for so for example, for me as an openly gay woman with a wife, I'm not going to choose to go to Trinity Western. I wouldn't be able to sign that covenant. I wouldn't be able to abide by it. In a theoretical world, would you have wanted to attend anyways? I would not have. I would not have. However, um, and, that, and that has been, you know, part of my argument, you know, part of my own academic as well as personal belief, I have not been diametrically opposed to them having a law school, even with the covenant the way it stands. And I can I can kind of get into that if you would like. And and part of that is that I just don't think that most openly gay students are going to choose to go to Trinity Western University. If they need to sign this covenant. If they need to sign this covenant, right? And, and I will say Trinity Western, uh, a couple of things. Their academic reputation is very, very high. And they have been very gracious with me in terms of giving me information, helping me recruit interviewees, and I have been quite grateful for that. And, um, you know, I would not have been able to do this without their support. 
In the meantime, I have been in the process of interviewing faculty, student, staff, and I have had one person say to me that that of course there are gay students at Trinity Western, and I'm and I'm aware aware of that. But to be a young Christian person who's 18 years old, who's really struggling with their sexual identity, having grown up in a in a conservative Christian, Christian home, that there's almost this pressure within them to go to this conservative Christian university where maybe they will be able to pray away the gay, for example, or they'll be able to really bury that part of them. And that was something that I hadn't considered, right? So I hadn't considered that I had considered that openly gay students like myself, they're not going to choose to go to Christian university where they have to sign this covenant, but I hadn't considered those that are just feeling their own pressure because of their own internalized homophobia of wanting to go to that school because perhaps it will cure them, save them, or they'll be able to, you know, resist getting into a same-sex relationship while they're there. Especially if they are not technically adults yet. I took my first university class, for instance, when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if your birthday is at the end of the year, you could be 17 years old when you're starting university. Now, people are coming out at younger and younger ages now, but I think if you grew up in a very conservative Christian home, that that may not be the case, uh, at least in the same numbers that it's happening in in youth in general or in any secluded upbringing really sure absolutely so if you grew up in a conservative chinese home or you grew up in a conservative very conservative italian home or whatever it is so family faith and culture can really impact how comfortable you are with your own sexuality absolutely how do you think this has affected the supreme court decision that they would not have a law school do you think in your opinion, that's what a lot of people were considering? Was it just that we need to recognize that this is discriminatory and not allow this law school to go through because we can't have lawyers out there with set beliefs? That's a big question. So the fact is we have lawyers out there with set beliefs. We have lawyers out there who fall under the queer umbrella. We have lawyers out there who fall under the homophobic perhaps racist, perhaps anti-Semitic umbrella, right? So lawyers, I mean, we like to think that lawyers are (laughs) neutral, neutral, right? And we like to think the law is neutral, Neutral. but neither of those things are true, right? We all come into things with our own set of beliefs, our own sort of blueprint based on how we were raised, what we've experienced in life. We all have a, a schema through which we see the world. And so, again, you're just as likely to have a homophobic conservative lawyer going to the University of Toronto or to Osgood as you might at Trinity Western. So the argument was a little bit different this time around. The argument wasn't that they were going to be producing poor or homophobic lawyers. In fact, I suspect that they would actually have quite a good law school. Again, their academic um, reputation is is quite high. So I have no doubt that they would produce 
good lawyers in the same way that they've produced very good nurses, very good teachers. They have one of the, the best nursing schools in Canada. Of course, Trinity Western comes with a very high cost. They're also the most expensive school in Canada, being a private school. Uh, so I wasn't concerned, and I don't think other people were concerned about what kind of lawyers would be producing. What the concern was is that they were acting in a way that is contradictory to the charter and they were asking the permission of legal bodies to say yes you can have this law school even with the given covenant which is mandatory by the way so every student faculty and staff member has to apply or sorry has to sign that covenant before they can be considered for a job before they can be considered for acceptance as a student so part of it was the mandatory nature of the covenant that the Supreme Court uh, had an issue with. Going back to, I know you gave a talk several months ago, was mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And I noticed that you were expressing that the law is also a social construct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does that play in? Well, so there's a there's a, a few things. What has been interesting to me has been the the overwhelming amount of people who have just said either in their in their journalism that they're writing for papers, in personal conversations that I've had, that this is very black and white, they shouldn't be allowed to law school, they're being discriminatory. And I'm always wary when there is a very broad conversation for which everybody is sort of just giving the quote-unquote appropriate answer. Much like the Jordan Peterson argument, and I'm not saying at all that I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson, but I'm finding that everybody now is just saying, oh, Jordan Peterson, he's so terrible, without having ever read Jordan Peterson, without knowing actually what the arguments are. And again, I'm not I'm not a huge fan, but I have taken the time to read quite a bit of what he has said in terms of gender pronouns, etc. But but people are just giving this sort of pat answer, Trinity Western should not have a law school. Absolutely. And I have can say also that I've met Christians or people who identify within certain religious contexts mm-hmm. who are no longer a practicing Christian or whatever it is. However, when questioned, they will always ask atheists, have you read the Bible? Mm-hmm. So it exists everywhere. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so... So I'm always I'm always wary of when there's sort of a very large scale conversation happening kind of across the country or amongst academics, where everyone is just giving the sort of pat the the sort of PC answer. Trinity Western should not be given a law school, and they don't actually know what the arguments are, what the because it's so multi layered and so nuanced, and everybody is talking about the the charter protection or, you know, you can't discriminate based on um, sexual identity, which is true, right? You can't, according to, say, for example, the Ontario Human Rights Code, the BC Human Rights Code, you can't, sexual identity is a a protected area. You cannot discriminate based on somebody's gender, for example, their race, their religion, uh, their sexual identity. But it's the religion piece that people are also, that people are forgetting about. So we're really focusing on not discriminating against LGBTQ people. Absolutely. Which is great. I have really benefited from that. I was able to marry my partner. I'm able to go to 
pride this weekend in Vancouver or I'm able to live my life quite openly. But religion is also a charter protection. And in fact, I mean, not only in Section 15 of the Charter, where all of the areas of protection are kind of laid out, but in Section 2 of the Charter that protects freedom of religion and consciousness and association. There hasn't been as much talk about that piece also being a charter protected area. And so what's quite interesting to me, and this is sort of going outside of my thesis, I really wanted to actually make this a significant part of my thesis, but my supervisor's not willing to get 300 pages handed to her at the end of it. So I'll have to save it for a PhD. But what is interesting to me is this sort of shifting of values. So the charter, uh, or so those those protected areas, for example, age, race, religion, they're supposed to sort of run concurrently, run side by side. But in practice, it's often not how they're running. There's sort of the rights that we're really all concerned about right now, sort of gender, trans rights, in general, LGTB rights, and sort of moving down the ladder. Religion is is really becoming something that we're pushing aside. And I think that's a result of this real move towards secularization. I mean, secularization should really mean that, that there's a separation of church and state, but how it's being practiced is that religion should just be removed from abolished. the public sphere. It, not abolished per se, but it has no business being in the public sphere. So if you look at what's been happening in Quebec over the last couple of years where, you know, they wanted to make it so that public uh, workers, government workers, couldn't wear a kippah, they couldn't wear a turban because they wanted it to be very, very secular. They wanted it to be r- religiously neutral. That's not really what secularization, secularization means, but that is how it's being practiced. That uh, religion is a purely personal thing and it should happen in your home, in your place of worship, and that's it. And how did this affect your decision to work on this thesis in particular? Was it just finding a balance between the rights of other people and your own rights? Was it something that you came across that sparked your interest? Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of both. So when I was first here at UVic, I had my, my plan had been to look at the effects of increasing secularization on freedom of religion and the duty to accommodate. Looking at a number of case studies, Trinity Western likely being one of them. And as the case or the, the application for the law school became more prominent and started taking up quite a lot of media time and I was becoming increasingly interested in that, I found I was really focusing on that. And then something really fabulous uh, as, a, as a scholar, I was very lucky to be handed a set of documents that other people don't generally have access to, and that is Trinity Western University's previous community covenants. And so my understanding is that a number of scholars who have been looking at Trinity Western have requested those and have not, for for whatever reason, have not been able to access them. And Trinity Western, again, for whatever reason, uh, opted to or agreed to share those with me. And so I then had these documents that I could actually look at and compare and contrast in light of what was happening socially, politically, religiously within Canada at the time that each document was revised, rewritten. 
And with these documents, I know you mentioned before that, and now, that you were very fortunate to have these documents. And very I have fortunate. to ask, how did you obtain these documents? What was it? I mean, you're obviously lovely, but <laughs> it's still... I was purely just my absolute loveliness, uh, <laughs> which doesn't totally come through on radio, but I'm really lovely. Uh, so... No, it was, uh, you know, I had been slowly building a relationship with Trinity Western. I had had uh, an opportunity to meet with Earl Phillips, who is the executive director of the proposed law school, about a year and a half ago. It was guest lecturing at UVix Law School in a course on religion and law and so the prof for that class uh, Kathy Chan I believe had invited him in to come and talk about the Trinity Western application for a law school and I had introduced myself to him afterwards and said here's who I am and here's what I'm looking at and I have been very upfront with Trinity Western about being a gay woman about being a married woman being uh, about as far left-leaning as one could possibly be but also being a critical thinker and also letting him know that the application for law school was not black and white for me, that there, that I recognize that there were multiple layers and that I recognize that it's becoming um, in some ways more difficult to be an open Christian in a country that's really wanting us to move away from religion or is wanting to relegate religion to the private sphere. And so I think it's possible that he saw me as an ally. Look, here's this gay woman who's on our side. Uh, and again, it's not that that's not that black and white for me. Of course. And so, uh, and so over time, I had kept in touch with him. And, you know, when they had a win or a loss in either BC or Ontario, I would reach out to him for his thoughts. And I kept him aware of what it was that I was looking at. Uh, and then I had said, you know, I'd love to actually see how these documents have changed over time and how secularization has perhaps impacted that. And would I, would I be able to see them? And he just made it happen. He just made it happen. There you go. So relationship building, uh, a combination of relationship building and loveliness. <laughs> and I am curious, though, with the thesis, this is a case study. Would you call it a case study? Yeah, I guess I would call it a case study. I mean, I'm again, I am really looking at how secularization is impacting freedom of religion, but I'm looking at a very specific case study uh, so the so again my broader question really is the impact that secularization has had on freedom of religion within Canada uh, but I am looking at this very specific case study ie Trinity Western University's community covenants and how does this play into your personal research why this for your MA that's a good question so so there's there is also the the personal piece of as I said, I have really benefited by Canada's move towards more progressive attitudes towards LGBTQ people. As I said, I, you know, I, I got married to the person I wanted to get married to, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I mean, I'm not 
grateful is sort of a weird word, yes. right? Because it's like somebody's done me a favor. But it's a right. When it's, yeah. when really, and they just did what they should have done, right? Right. So, but I am still, I'm still grateful for living in a place where this is possible. Because that was not always the case. Mm-hmm. And it's not possible in most places in the world. But to gain those rights while simultaneously there is a sense that other people's rights are being pushed to the bottom rung of the ladder or that my rights now supersede somebody else's rights, that doesn't feel good for me. It does not give me the warm fuzzies, so to speak. So that's part of the the kind of personal interest. Uh, In terms of sort of why this for my MA, I did a research paper a few years ago on, it was the provision of religious services for Canadian federal inmates. So how do we serve the religious needs of a increasingly pluralistic prison population? So prison population really reflects, you know, the the larger population of Canada for the most part. There's certainly some discrepancies. Indigenous people are way overrepresented in provincial as well as federal jails. But in terms of religious plurality, you know, the number of, say, Muslims that are in Canada are about the same percentage that's in, uh, it, that is in, that are incarcerated, Christians, Jews, etc. And so how do you go from in the 1950s where pretty much everybody that was in jail would have been loosely or not so loosely Christian identified, right? Because everybody in Canada was for the most part Christian identified. So now that has become um, increasingly diverse, including including within uh, Correctional Services Canada. So how do you accommodate those people? And the the catalyst for, for that paper was that Vic Taze, who was the Minister of Public Safety at the time, had decided that they were going to end all part-time prison chaplaincy contracts, which virtually eliminated all non-Christian religious providers. So what that means is all of the um, religious providers, so an imam, for example, or a rabbi, they were all on part-time contracts. I'm not sure that there were any on full-time contracts. So by eliminating all the part-time contracts, you eliminate every single religious provider who's not Christian. And so now you have, say, a Buddhist person who's been incarcerated who wants to see a monk, but they no longer exist. And so every person who's not Christian is then forced to see a Christian religious provider. And it was also that piece of, you know, moving towards secularization, discrimination around faith, relegating religion, again, to the private sphere, that there's, that the government shouldn't be paying for religious services, that there should be this total separation. In that case, there was really some discrimination because they didn't get rid of all religious services, they just got rid of non-Christian religious services. So that is where I really started to get interested in the role of religion within the public sphere and the impact that religious pluralism and secularization was uh, having. It has made things more complex, more interesting, uh, but certainly more complex. And now this is more of a personal question, but as many of the interviewees on this show have stated, there is life outside of 
writing a thesis. <laughs> what are some Not right your... now, there's not. <laughs> what are some of your goals within academia and what do you hope to gain out of this MA and how has the program been for you? I know we're still talking about school. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, so I guess I will share that um, I'm 48 years old and I did my undergraduate degree in the very early 90s at the University of Waterloo. And so I had a 22, 23 year hiatus between BA and MA. So it was, so coming back to school and I had done quite a bit of schooling sort of in between. For example, I did a lot of American Sign Language and Deaf Studies uh, within schooling, and I worked in the deaf community for quite a number of years, for about a, for about a decade. Uh, but it's a different kind of schooling, right? It's a different kind of, it's not sort of an academic kind of schooling. And so this was really a shock to the system. The amount of reading that I had to do was really stunning. Uh, and my so there was there's one thing that sort of worked in my favor and then one thing that I think worked against me so the the one thing that worked in my favor is that I have I have and this is not to slight anybody that's still sort of 24 years old but I have a very different work ethic than a 24 year old and I have a lot less distractions in some ways right I'm not out partying in the same way right. that I used to be it's very sad uh, <laughs> I'm not um you know, I just have a very different life of than course, a 24-year-old. Yeah. I was also in a very fortunate position that I had I've had a very good job for quite some time. And so I did have some financial stability. I had a wife who earns a very good living who was able to support me. Uh, but on the flip side of that, I did have this very long gap and I forgot what it was like to be in university, which is very different than say the 22, 23 year old who's going right from BA to MA who's already sort of in that world. And I don't have the energy that I did <laughs> when I was 24, which was a weird, it's been a weird dance because I don't have the energy and yet I have a different work ethic. And so I've mm -hmm. often put in 80 hour weeks, which is, ridiculous and I don't Absolutely. recommend it to anybody that's thinking about going to grad school do not do 80 hour weeks you cannot maintain it I maintained it for about 18 months before I sort of really hit a wall <laughs> um so what am I hoping for I uh well I'm I'm going back to work as of October 1st and then we'll see from there okay yeah we'll see from there do you think that a PhD is in the following chapters, perhaps? Is that something you've thought about? or It's something that I think a lot about. It's something that I think a lot about, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Paige. It was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. This is really great. Thanks. For interviewee contact information, or to listen to this episode again, go to podcasts at cfuv.ca. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Jargon.